No my hi my to the Green Tea Podcast. My name is Chloe Swarbrick. I am a Green MP based in Auckland Central. And the name of this podcast is Green Tea because I was trying really hard to come up with a name for a podcast. And uh, I came across the Young Greens Facebook page where they were having yarns about things associated to politics. And Green Tea was what they were calling them. So I have absolutely stolen this name. But uh, each episode throughout this podcast, I'll be having an energizing kōrero. Uh, energizing is the terminology that Bonnie, my intern, has inserted into this bio. Um, but I probably, uh, it'll be as energizing as I can make it uh, with philanthropists, journalists, etc. Uh, but basically just genuinely inspiring individuals uh, and hopefully it'll wake us up a bit, uh, the Woke Brigade, uh, to what is happening around the world and what we might do to take responsibility and to take action for those issues. In this episode I speak to Johan Hari. Johan is an amazing journalist, particularly with the piece of work uh, that he did, a book called Chasing the Scream. It explores the history and interrogates the impact of the war on drugs. And in this episode, Johan talks me through some basic questions he was really motivated to answer in that body of work. For example, why do we take drugs? Why do we carry on? What causes addiction? And as it turns out, There are some answers that we have been profoundly wrong about. From a trip to the Rat Park experiment, we then delve into drug reform in Portugal and Switzerland. Johan gives us a solution. Improve well-being. Just for some further context, it's important to note that this podcast, this interview with Johan was recorded towards the beginning of 2019, which was in the final stages of us negotiating and passing through amendments to the Misuse of Drugs Act in response to the synthetics crisis, and also as we were progressing conversations domestically and negotiations across the political aisle for the final version of the Cannabis Legalization and Control Bill, which all of you will get to vote on at reference this general election. Um, I'm here today with Johan Hari, who is a researcher, journalist, British, British journalist, British writer, journalist, author. writer, author <laughs> on a number of things, um, including uh, but not limited to uh, the incredible piece of work that he did called Chasing the Scream, which essentially looks into the failure of the war on drugs. Um, so one of the things that you say in that book, I believe, is along the lines of everything we know about drugs is wrong. Can you begin to unpack that for me? Yeah, I should just say two things at the start. <laughs> yeah. One is that I want to apologise to your viewers. I've literally just landed and I'm horribly jet-lagged. So I'm normally more coherent than I'm about to be. Uh, and the things I wanted to say, people in New Zealand should be really proud of you and the work you're doing. I think it's incredibly impressive and, and, um, and you should be really proud of it. And all over the world, I met politicians who, some of whom never expected at the start of their careers to do this, who really went to the wire for drug policy reform. And some of them, it cost them their careers. Mm. And they all told me it was the proudest thing they'd ever done. Mm. And I think it's partly because it goes to what you're saying. So I wanted to understand this subject for a very personal reason. We had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I, obviously I was too small then to understand why, but as I got older, I, I realized why. And when I started the research for this book, which was gone ages ago now, so eight years ago, mm. um, you know, someone I loved was in a very bad state with addiction. And I was trying to think about what I could do to help. 
and I, and I just wrote out a list of incredibly basic questions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Why, we were coming up to 100 years since drugs were first banned yeah. in the United States and yeah. they then imposed it on the whole world. And the first was, um, why did we go to war 100 years ago against people with addiction problems and drug yeah. users? Um, why do we carry on when it doesn't seem to be working? Mm -hmm. What are the actual alternatives like in practice? And what causes addiction? Mm. And um, I couldn't really find the answers in what I was reading, so I ended up going on this ridiculously big journey over 30,000 miles. And partly just looking at the best scientific research and also just sitting with people whose lives have been changed mm. by this, from a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn, who's one of the cleverest people I know, to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel in Juarez, to the only country that decriminalized all drugs with incredible results. And, and I think there's this a whole range of areas in which we've been profoundly wrong about drugs, the drug war, the alternatives. I'll give you one example that was close to my heart, which is about addiction. Mm. So if you'd asked me when I started doing this research, what causes, let's say, heroin addiction, which mm. happened in some close to me, I would have looked at you like you were really thick and I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction, yeah. right? The clue's in the name. Mm. Um, and and I was quite um, shocked to, to learn that there's some really deep misconceptions in that. So, we think that if we're sitting here in, in Wellington, we think if you and me kidnapped the next 20 people off the street to walk past the parliament, and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like some villain in a Saw film, mm -hmm. at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts. For a simple reason, there are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately yeah. physically crave. And in fact, that's what we think addiction is. That's what I thought I'd literally seen happen in front of me. And the first thing that alerted me to the fact that something not right about that is when it was explained to me, in Britain, mm. if you get hit by a truck, say you break your hip, God forbid, you'll be taken to hospital and for the pain, you'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Yeah. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than you would score anywhere on the streets because it's medically pure, right? People in British hospitals are given that heroin for quite long periods of time. Yeah. Any of your viewers have got a British grandmother, if she's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother <laughs> has taken lots of heroin. Mm. If what we think is right, that addiction, heroin addiction is caused by exposure to the chemical hooks, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals in Britain? Large, they should be drug Exactly. Yeah. Large numbers of them, or a significant <coughs> number of them, should be leaving hospital trying to score on the streets. This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, it just seems so weird. Like, so you've got a situation where you've got one person in a hospital bed who's been given a heroin, who doesn't become addicted. And you've got someone in the alleyway outside mm. who is. I thought, well, how can this be? What? I just didn't believe it until uh, I kept looking at the scientific research. And I only began to understand it when I went to Vancouver yeah. and met an amazing person called Professor Bruce Alexander, who did this experiment that I think is transformed how we think about addiction. Mm -hmm. So he explained to me this theory that we have that, that addiction is caused just by the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your viewers can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. You, you take a rat, you put it in a cage, yeah. and you give it two water bottles. Mm -hmm. One is just water. One's the got other, cocaine in it. Exactly, yeah. the other is water laced with heroin yeah. or cocaine, yeah. right? If you, um, if you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within about a week. Mm -hmm. So there you go, right? That's where our story comes from, it makes perfect sense. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You're putting the rat alone in an empty cage yeah. where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs, right? What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, mm -hmm. which is basically like heaven for rats, right? Mm -hmm. They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've mm -hmm. got loads of sex. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal mm -hmm. water and the drugged water. And of course, they try both, they don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. Mm. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. 
none of them ever overdose. So they go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful for yeah. rats to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful. There's lots of human examples we can talk about, but for me, the key lesson of this is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yep. Yep. And I also think so too. I mean, the, the variables are entirely different in both of those scenarios, right? You've got an environment that's entirely different. And that's kind of your point. It's the same with someone being inside the hospital and outside of the hospital on the street and kind of the opportunities that they have available to them. One thing that really struck me about that, though, um, is the way that you started what you were saying about it's not a war on drugs, it's a war on people who use drugs. I mean, can you dig into that? Because that's the, the framing and the rhetoric that politicians have been using for such a long time now is that we're fighting drugs. But that's not what you found. No, uh, not at all. And I think there's, there's several aspects of that. Um, so one is what we do to people who use and people who are addicted, which mm -hmm. different categories. And one is um, what happens when you ban drugs. And yep. we can talk about that a bit later. But to me, and where I think the best way to answer that is to talk about the places that try to move beyond it and to see the difference. Uh -huh. So, for example, in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the yep. worst drug problems mm -hmm. in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. Mm. And every year they tried the American way more. They imprisoned more people, yeah. they shamed more people, mm -hmm. all of that, and every year the problem kept getting worse. So one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and tried to do exactly what you're trying to do here, mm. to massive to credit, which is to get a cross-party agreement. And they, they were like, look, we can't go on like this, what mm. are we going to do? So they agreed to set up a scientific, along with some of the other parties, they agreed to set up a um, scientific panel led by an amazing doctor I got to know called Huayo Gulao. And they said to this panel, go away, mm. figure out what would solve this problem, and we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. Which is pretty unique when it yeah. comes to politicians signing over that mandate to begin with. Exactly, I mean, you know this much better than I do. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think it was partly because the crisis was so bad, mm -hmm. and without giving away some private details, there were lots of senior politicians who had addicted, addicted people in their families. Yeah. And, um, and, and, the, and so clear the policy wasn't working. So the, this panel goes away, looks at all the evidence, including Rat Park. Mm -hmm. They came back and they said, decriminalize all drugs, mm -hmm. from cannabis to crack, everything. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, on yep. arresting them, trying them, imprisoning them, yep. shaming them, and spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. Mm -hmm. and interestingly, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment in New Zealand and Britain, right? Yep. They do a bit of residential rehab that does have some value, mm -hmm. but the main thing they did was a big program of job creation and housing, yep. right? Set obviously a huge issue here in New Zealand, but the, 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 they, so they said to, in terms of housing, so they, they, they say you used to be a mechanic, mm -hmm. they go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, will pay half his wages. Yeah, right? so essentially government subsidies. Exactly. They set up a big program of microloans so people with addiction problems could set up and run small businesses about things they cared about, like removal companies or whatever. Mm -hmm. The goal was to say to everyone with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, mm -hmm. we're on your side, mm -hmm. we want you mm -hmm. back. And by the time I went there, the results were in the best scientific study. This was by the British Journal of Criminology that found there had been a massive fall in addiction, massive fall in injecting drug use, enormous fall in, in overdose deaths, enormous fall in HIV transmission. Yep. And one of the ways you know this works so well is hardly anyone in Portugal wants to go back, right? Mm. 
I went and interviewed the guy who led the opposition to the decriminalization at the time, a man called Juan Figueroa, who was the top drug cop in, 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 in Portugal. And, and he said to people at the time, totally understandably, he said, look, surely if we decriminalize all drugs, we can have a big increase in drug use, yeah. increase in kids using drugs, this could be a disaster. Well, that's everything that we know about drugs, right? Exactly. And that's everything we've been told about drugs for nigh on 100 years. Exactly. And, and, and he said to me, everything I said would happen did not happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent 20 years before the decriminalization making people's lives worse when he now realized he could have been helping them to turn their lives around. And this is something I've seen all over the world. It's why I think it's so, what you're doing is so important. Drug policy reform is incredibly controversial before it happens. People think the sky is going to fall. And then they see the alternatives in practice. This is true from Colorado to Uruguay to, to Portugal to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. When they see it in practice, it's not a magic bullet. They still have problems in all of course. Of course. But there's such a dramatic improvement because what we're doing is so counterproductive. Mm. that. And I think in a way what, the, what they saw, I mean, addiction is just one area where it screws things up. I don't actually think it's the biggest. We can talk about the other one in a minute. But the, you know, what, 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 what Portugal showed is... The core of addiction, I think, mm. is not wanting to be present in your life because yeah. your life is too painful a place to be. Mm -hmm. And once you want, and you, we see this in, in New Zealand, where, where are the addiction crises yeah. happening? They're happening in places where distress is highest, mm -hmm. in all sorts of other ways, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and the war on drugs theory is if someone's got an addiction problem, we need to punish them in order to give them an incentive to stop. Yep. But once you understand that pain is the driver of addiction, mm. you can see sometimes people say, oh, that the war on drugs approach doesn't work when it yep. comes. It's much worse than that. Mm. The war on drugs approach makes the problem worse, yes. right? It, it, it's not just that it's failing to deal with the problem. It's actually Mass massively exacerbating. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not the only cause of the problem, of course, mm. but it's massively exacerbating the problem. Mm. And entrenching it as well, and yeah. intergenerational kind of pain and harm and trauma. Uh, one thing that you said there as well was about um, kind of obviously investing in people turning their lives around, but also the rhetoric that politicians were using prior and the fact that politicians have been doing, you know, taking the wrong approach for 20 years prior and how I think obviously they've been appealing to the general public by using that rhetoric. So how did they go about changing the perspective of everyday people out there on the street because I think if you were still to ask you know a random person on the street they would be absolutely adverse to the notion of making something like uh, heroin or methamphetamine or whatever it may be uh, the notion of decriminalizing that is a very scary prospect because of this narrative that we've been fed for so long totally. so how do you change the public's perspective there's someone coming in a couple of weeks to New Zealand mm. who's I think the perfect person for this my candidate for president of the world and we yeah. Ruth Dreyfus who was the first female president of Switzerland, a totally incredible woman. I think Ruth is a really great model of this. My dad's from Switzerland, so I'm a Swiss citizen. And Swiss people are really conservative, mm -hmm. right? My Swiss relatives are, make Donald Trump look like Gandhi, right? And yet Swiss people voted to legalize heroin, partly because of Ruth. Now Ruth's a very modest person, she'd say it was part of lots of people. And, mm -hmm. and that's true to some degree, but she played a, a key role. So Switzerland in the 90s had a massive heroin crisis. And people might remember kind of dystopian scenes of, you know, People are just in public parks injecting themselves in the neck, just all, which to Swiss people are Switzerland, not a coincidence that the people who invented clocks, right? They're obsessed with order. To them, I mean, it'd be awful to anyone, but to them, this is like the worst thing that mm. could happen. Um, and Ruth explained to people that she wanted to legalize heroin, people with addiction problems. And she, she said to people, when you hear the phrase legalization, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. Yep. What we have now is anarchy and chaos. Mm. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users 
all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease, and chaos. She said legalization is the way we restore order to this chaos. So the way it worked in Switzerland was, um, uh, obviously, no, virtually nobody wants to legalize heroin in the way, say, alcohol is legal, right? No one thinks there should be a crack aisle in your local pharmacy. Or an ad, you know, as yeah. you come out of Of the... course, that's ridiculous, yeah. you know, ludicrous caricature. Maybe there's some very extreme libertarian somewhere, but virtually nobody mm. in the drug reform movement wants that. Um, what, what, the way it works is if you've got an addiction problem in Switzerland, to heroin specifically, you're assigned to a clinic. I went to the one in Geneva. Um, you, you go to that clinic, you're given your heroin there, you can't take it out with you, you've got to use it there. You're watched by a nurse as you use it, and then you leave and you go to your job, because you're given loads of support to get work, to get housing, and to get therapy. Mm. And what's interesting is, and I actually found this quite challenging when I went there, so you're given any dose you want except the one that would kill you, you set your dose, and there is never any pressure to cut back, right? You can stay on that program for your whole life if you want to. And yet, when I went there, the program had been in place for 12 years, and there were very few people that had been on at the start of the program. Almost everyone cut back over time and stopped. And I remember saying to the psychiatrist, Rita Mangi, who runs it, well, why is that? Because we've been told the drug takes you over, yeah. you need more and more of the hooks. Why do they stop if they could just carry on forever? And she looked at me like I was kind of stupid, and she said, well, because their lives get better. Mm -hmm. And as their lives get better, they don't want to be anesthetized so much, which seems so obvious when you, when you know it. And yeah. it's worth saying about the Swiss experiment, there have been zero heroin overdose deaths on the legal program since it began 15 years ago. That's literally not one person has died. And outside the program, there's been a huge fall in the deaths because people mm. start transferring into the program. And I think that's an interesting model about how you communicate to people. So Switzerland, as I say, super conservative. Once Ruth had established the program, there was a referendum in Switzerland and 70% of Swiss people voted to, to keep heroin legal. I think for several reasons, and that campaign is really worth studying in detail, I think, for politicians mm. who are interested in drug policy reform, because it's how you communicate to people who don't really agree with you. So there are the compassion-based arguments, yep. which we're very much in favour of. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't such a big part of the Swiss. They were part of it. Mm. Um, then there's the liberty-based arguments, which are unbelievably unpopular everywhere, right? Uh, you know, the ones who say, you've got a right to do whatever you want with your own body. I actually agree with that philosophically, but that weirdly, even, <laughs> even in libertarian places like Colorado, mm. They just, they polled it, it was a disaster. What worked were order-based arguments. This is the way we restore order to chaos. This is the way we reduce this problem. So they were partly pragmatic arguments about, look, the one thing you can say in defense of the war on drugs is we've given it a fair shot, right? <laughs> the United States True. has done it for a hundred years. Yeah. They spent a trillion dollars. Mm. They've killed a conservative estimate, hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. They've destroyed whole countries like Colombia. Mm. And at the end of all that, they can't even keep drugs out of their prisons where they pay someone to walk around the walled perimeter the whole time, right? Mm -hmm. Gives you a sense of how much we're at the, that approach has been tried. It's We can see the results, right? Um, so partly it was an argument for pragmatism, partly it was an argument for order, partly it was an argument for just good sense in spending, right? Mm -hmm. That program is so, there was also a big fall in crime in, in the cities that did this. So mm -hmm. I can't remember, it's something like, uh, the figures are in chasing the screen, but it was something like a 70% fall in car thefts, yeah. you know? So th there's all sorts of pragmatic arguments that um, I think are really worth thinking about, exploring, especially as you get to a referendum on well, cannabis. I mean, obviously the debate about cannabis is very different to the debate about heroin, but you know, I think these are really interesting arguments to look at. And it was figures of order and authority were the best exponents of the reform. So for example, police officers yeah. were really important figures in, in, in getting reform. Yeah, so it seems as though what you're saying, the solution to drug abuse and addiction is well-being. Yeah, and that goes much deeper than drug policy, right? Yeah. I mean, part of, and I strongly suspect so you'd agree with because of your wider politics, but 
in a way, um, I think we've talked about harm reduction too narrowly, yes. right? So if you think about, for example, what's happening in the US at the moment, opioid crisis. Yeah. I mean, I, I spend most of my time in the US. The situation is, is hard to describe to people how terrible the situation is yeah. in places like Monadnock in New Hampshire, where I was recently. I mean, to give you one fact, average male life expectancy for white men has fallen in the United States for the first time since the Civil War, overwhelmingly driven because of the addiction crisis, right? And if you want to understand why that's happening, and I think this is very relevant um, from the little I know about the situation in New Zealand to New Zealand as well, we have to look at the, the deeper causes. Now, bad drug policy makes it worse, but I don't think that's the driver of why this is mm-hmm. happening. Uh, it's certainly a big factor in why it's getting worse and worse. Um, how would I put it? Everyone watching you, watching your, your show knows do they have natural physical needs? Obviously, yeah. you need food, you need shelter, you need clean air, you need you know housing. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs, mm. right? You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture, kind of Western culture, is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive. I like dentistry. <laughs> I like gay marriage, you know. Yeah. Um, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological Absolutely. needs. It, to me, the analogy with the addiction crisis that's happening at the moment across most of the Western world is a bit, it's obviously I'm British, this is kind of, it helps us to think about it if you think about it in relation to something that happened in Britain in the 18th century. So the 18th century, huge numbers of British people were driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums. And, and, and what happened is, um, huge numbers of people turned to gin, right? There's a thing called the gin craze. Okay. Outbreak of mass alcoholism, it genuinely happened. Yeah. Um, and, you know, catastrophe, it's a famous painting from the time of like a woman downing a bottle of gin while her baby falls out of a window, right? And there really were like terrible situations. And if you look at what people said at the time, they said, look at this evil drug gin. Yeah. Look at what it does to people. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, like the debate here about pee, mm-hmm. it, then this would go away. Mm. Right? Now, when we look back, we can see it can't be gin that caused the crisis because anyone in Britain can go and buy gin if they're over the age of 18. And while there's still some alcoholism, obviously, we don't have people falling out, babies falling out of windows. We don't yeah. have mass alcoholism. What changed? It's not the availability of the drug. The drug is more available now than it was then. What changed is the amount of distress in the society. Mm. Addiction crises are signals and indicators of, and, and it's one of many signals about terrible problems that are happening in the in this culture, whether it's, you know, one in three middle-aged women in the United States is taking an antidepressant, uh, suicide rate has massively gone up. I think Trump is a symptom of it, right? The, the term Brexit and these turning to extreme, they're not good solutions by any means, as you, I'm sure you can guess what I think about that. But drug policy is an important part, but in a way, uh, and drug policy can reduce a lot of the problems. Yeah. Um, but I also think the wider politics that you and I share yeah. are actually mu- as important, if not more important, to solve the deeper crisis there. So that's kind of the point that you were making around Portugal's model, right? I mean, a lot of people zero in and focus on the decriminalisation of all drugs yeah. because that is the wow, holy heck, no one's ever seen anything like that, although it did happen 18 odd years ago now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but the massive part of it that is not highlighted anywhere near enough is that they sought to actually invest in people yeah. and their well-being. Being. It's the transfer of the research. So I think one of the one of the arguments that people most get immediately, even people who are quite anti-drugs, mm. is look, we've got a limited amount of money to spend. Mm. What should we spend it on? 
do you think we should spend it on trying to keep drugs out physically out of mm-hmm. the country mm-hmm. when that's there's never been a society where that succeeded yeah. apart from Taliban Afghanistan okay maybe if we build an extreme theocracy mm-hmm. you know you can keep them out for a few years and the minute the theocracy's gone they come back with yeah. a vengeance right um, so I think one of the arguments that really does work with people is you've got a limited pot of money should we spend it on something we really know even in their hearts prohibitionist no doesn't work yeah or should we spend it on something that everywhere it's been tried mm-hmm. does reduce the problem significantly? I think that thing about, and the New Zealand Drug Policy Foundation, who are a fantastic group, everyone in New Zealand should be really proud of them, mm-hmm. are doing excellent work, have done the figures, which I'm stupid I didn't bring with me, but I, it, um, I think it's 60% mm-hmm. of the spending in here is on the enforcement and 40% yeah. on something like, we have someone from there in the corner. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was 80-20, yeah, right, 80, so it's 20. even worse than I thought. Yeah. Right, so that's bonkers, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's, that's you know, 80% of the tax money spent on this just being put into a bonfire and burned. Yeah. Actually, it's worse than that, because... It's multiplying the half. Yeah, exactly, yeah. a bonfire would be quite pretty. <laughs> and the, exactly, to make, 80% is being spent making the problem worse, 20% is being spent making the problem, you know, reducing the problem. Mm. So I think you're, you're totally right. But I think one of the things that where people on our side, and it's been fascinating talking to politicians all over the world about this, um, very few people will defend the status quo. Mm-hmm. It's so obviously failed. One of the interesting things is whenever I get asked to go on TV about this, they say, who should we get on the other side? Because they just can't find anyone yeah. who isn't paid professionally to defend the drug war, to defend the drug war. That's how bad the status quo is. So I think people are ready to accept that what we've done doesn't work, but they still have lots of totally legitimate fears about the alternatives. Yeah. And it's partly about, it's why I've spent so much energy in chasing the screen, talking about the, you know, the first third is not about this, but the last third is talking about how the alternatives work in practice. Because yeah. too often this is debated as if it was an abstract question. So people go, you know, like we're at a philosophy seminar, well, how would drug legalization work? What could we, and as you go, look, Here's a plane ticket to Switzerland, right? Mm. Don't, don't talk to me about this abstract model, right? Mm. Let's go to the places that's why, which is why, you know, I didn't just go to the, I went to places that had been devastated by the drug mm. war, like Mexico, and I went to the place. And it, it's interesting because I think the biggest moral issue about the drug war is not actually the stuff that we've talked about, although the stuff we've talked about is very close to my heart. Mm. The biggest moral issue for me is the violence caused by prohibition. So yeah. it's worth explaining this to people globally how catastrophic this is. So. Um, and it, it can seem a bit strange to people. People hear the phrase drug-related violence, mm-hmm. and what they picture is someone taking drugs, going crazy and hurting yeah. someone, right? And that does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's a very good study this by uh, Professor Paul Goldstein, who found that's about 3% of what's called drug-related violence. Yeah. The vast majority is something else. So if you imagine, if you or me went out of here now mm-hmm. and decided we wanted to steal a bottle of vodka, right? As a respectable parliamentarian, I'm sure you'd never do this, but if, uh, the if we go to shop and we try to steal the vodka and that store catches us, mm. they'll call the police and the police will come and take us away, right? So that store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. Yeah. They've got the power of the law to uphold their property rights, mm-hmm. right? Okay, now imagine we wanted to steal a bag of weed or a bag of Coke, yeah. right? If we try to steal that from whoever around here sells it mm-hmm. um, and they catch us, obviously they can't phone the police. The police would arrest them. Mm. They have to fight us. Yeah. Now, you don't want as a dealer to be and I learned this from interviewing lots of drug dealers, you don't want to be having a fight every day. You've got to establish a reputation for being so frightening that no one would be so foolish as to try to steal from you, right? Mm. Now, that dynamic, that that, that, the violence that is built into that system Mm. um, is playing out all over the place out here in New Zealand. 
catastrophically, but it plays out particularly horrifically in the supply route countries where I spent time, like Mexico and, mm-hmm. and, and Colombia. I mean, by some estimates, more people have died in the wars in Mexico and Colombia than have died in Syria, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you want to know how much of that violence can be ended, just to ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers, mm-hmm. right? Does the head of Smirnoff go and shoot the head of Jack Daniels in the face, mm-hmm. right? No, that never happens. Exactly that happened under alcohol prohibition, right? Exactly that. The the one group of um, alcohol peddlers murdered other alcohol peddlers. We all know who Al Capone was. Um, I, I doubt anyone can name the head of Smirnoff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas everyone could name Pablo Escobar. So what do we see happening with gangs and gangs' involvement in the underground when drugs are taken out of the shadows and into the light into either decriminalisation or legalisation models? It bankrupts them. I mean, there are no alcohol peddlers in the United States. I mean, there's a very small amount of smuggling for light to avoid customs charges and things, but yeah. there's virtually none, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the so, which is for several reasons. So, firstly, um, a legal product is a much better product because mm-hmm. it's not adulterated. So we know this from alcohol prohibition. I mean, we know this playing out all around us. You've had 40 people who died and taking synthetic cannabinoids yeah. in the last year in New Zealand. Um, uh, so the legal product is radically better because you can't inspect an illegal product, you can't check its quality. Secondly, um, you, you can either make it cheaper or you can hold the price steady. And this sounds odd to people who say, some people say, well, surely once you legalise and tax it, it'll be more expensive yeah. than the illegal product. And that doesn't allow for, it sounds a bit wonky, but it's very important to understand, what's called the risk premium. Mm-hmm. At every stage for a prohibited drug, at every stage of the market, from the guy who grows it in a field in, you know, the yeah. Colombian... Um, rainforest where I've been to to the guy you buy off in the streets of Wellington not you personally um, the um, everyone has to be paid a significant risk premium now you don't want the price to collapse because then that incentivizes demand obviously as with anything if we anything we make cheaper more people buy it um, uh, so you can hold it steady with taxes and use those taxes for good things like in Colorado they legalized cannabis um, and spent all the tax money that was previously just going to criminals on their school system, for example. So there's a lot of really good things we can spend that spend that money on. And um, so there's a huge collapse in organized crime when you legalize. Of course, some people say, well, they'll just move into other, other sectors. And there's some truth in that, but criminals respond to uh, market demand like everyone else, mm-hmm. right? You can say, well, what other sectors might they move into? They can move into human trafficking or, or prostitution, but tragically, those markets are already being met, right? It's not like there's going to be an increase in demand. And it's legal here as well, I mean, the likes of prostitution. Yeah. yeah. So I think the the um, it, it leads to a significant reduction in violence. There's a guy called Professor Jeffrey Myron at Harvard University who's done a very good graph of the murder rate in the United States in the 20th century. It massively spikes up when alcohol is banned. Mm. It falls literally the day alcohol is legalised again and massively spikes up when drug prohibition is intensified in the 70s. It's not the only thing that was going on, of course, but but that is a big factor. Mm-hmm. So there would be a radical, and his estimate is there would be a 70% fall in the murder rate in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's not just him, and even a man I'm sure you don't like and I would never normally cite, but the Nobel um, Prize winning economist Milton Friedman, who was a deeply evil man in many ways, but but he was very good on drug policy, partly because he grew up in Chicago under mm-hmm. alcohol prohibition. Mm-hmm. And he calculated in 1986, there would be a fall in the murder rate of 10,000 people a year in the US if you mm. if you got rid of that, mm. if, you, if you ended alcohol, uh, ended drug prohibition, sorry. So, I mean, your kind of hypothesis, which, I mean, taking it back at a very basic level to kind of the rat experiments, and was it rat paradise? Rat park, yeah. Rat park <laughs> uh, and the isolated rat. Yeah. 
uh, and kind of the connotations around well-being and when people feel as though they belong and have a sense of purpose that they aren't necessarily turning to these forms of escapism which manifest in either you know drugs or alcohol yeah. I mean that's something which can largely be applied to pretty much everything whether it is the likes of gangs as well right I think to some degree I mean I think the gang thing when it comes to drugs is just a response to uh, market demand, right? Yeah, if I think about, organize. yeah, and I think about some of the people that I met, like uh, Chino Hardin is the transgender crack dealer. I spent a lot of time with her. I wrote about in Chasing the Scream. There was no other way in Chino's neighborhood that he was going to get lots of money mm. to do stuff, mm. right? So um, partly it's that we created a market incentive for people to be violent and yeah. and and uh, destructive. Um, and to establish a reputation for being terrifying. So it's mm-hmm. partly that. Um, but I think you're right that um, a society that doesn't meet people's psychological needs, mm-hmm. that leaves people feeling isolated. And, I mean, there's amazing stuff on this. I've written about a more recent book called Lost Connections about this, which is about this epidemic of despair and what we can do about it. I mean, I don't know the figures for New Zealand, but in the US, for example, and the trend has gone all over the Western world, it's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you mm. could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Now the most common answer is none. There are more, I mean, what is life like if you have nobody to turn to? We're a social species, right? Mm. What is life like if you have nobody to turn to? Mm. The, 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 you know, there's all this evidence, um, you know, it's very much part of the environmental crisis that I know you, we both care about. You know, there's evidence from this amazing man called Professor Tim Kasser shows the more you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious, mm-hmm. right? We, we've, we've built a whole value system yeah. that doesn't meet people's psychological needs. In fact, a bit like we're saying how the you know dr- drug policy makes everything worse. In fact, we teach people that the way to make yourself happier yeah. is to buy stuff and show it off. Actually, that makes you deeply miserable, right? Mm. So we've taught people the path to happiness, mm. a path to happiness that is in fact a path away from happiness. Yeah. So these are... Uh, a much deeper kind of um, civilizational crisis, I yeah. guess, is that sounds a bit pompous to put it like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but you're building a metaphorical wall built out of private property and stuff oh, I like that, that you own, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a really um, good way of putting it, yeah. And that wall becomes a cage, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're obviously going through this process with uh, the referendum yeah. on cannabis at the moment uh, and what that ends up looking like, which will obviously be put forward to the public. One of the, for lack of a better term, moral panics that we're up against is people afraid that this looks like like a slippery slope towards uh, decriminalisation or legalisation of other drugs. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm in favour of decriminalising the other drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think a bad way to make the case for cannabis reform yeah. is, and there were a few people who did this in Colorado, but not many, most of them are more sensible than this, is to say, well, cannabis is uniquely the good drug and, all, and this will protect people from the evil drugs, mm-hmm. which are all the other ones. I just think that's... Uh, reinforces stigma against the other drugs and is not not helpful. Yeah, the argument is, um, I think, the, in terms of winning the argument, um, and it's not a false argument to win the argument, I mean, it's true, is the stuff that is, look, cannabis exists, right? People will have noticed. Mm-hmm. It's there, it exists whether you like it or not. Yep. We don't have a choice about whether cannabis exists. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you had an imaginary lever you could pull that would yep. get rid of it. Yep. You, Some people would pull, I wouldn't, but you, some people would pull the lever, right? Mm-hmm. No such lever exists. Yep. The question is not, does cannabis exist? The question is, A, uh, should it be in the hands of armed criminal gangs? Mm -hmm. B, should we collect no tax revenue on it? Mm -hmm. C, should it be easier for children to get drugs? And this is an important point to make. Uh, I remember I interviewed this guy called Fred Martins, who was a cop in New Jersey, super right-wing cop, and he had an epiphany about the war on drugs in 1973. 
He was staking out a drug dealer at a car park in Wayne in New Jersey, which is one of the world's most depressing places. And he's, he's, he's watching this guy, and obviously he's in plain clothes, and a kid came up to him, like a young kid, like an 11 year old, and said, hey mister, will you do me a favor? Will you go into that liquor store and buy me some alcohol and they won't sell it to me, I'm too young. And Fred said, no, get out of here. So the kid walked up to the drug dealer and bought some drugs from him instead, because of course, Drug dealers don't check ID, right? And this is one of the interesting things. Since they legalized in Colorado, there's been a slight fall in teenage drug use mm. uh, because it's harder to get hold of. If your concern is to protect your children from cannabis, which we should because it's not good for developing brains, um, absolutely you want to put a premium on getting the drugs out of the hands of yeah. armed criminal gangsters who don't give a damn how old your child is to licensed businesses who have a lot to lose if they sell to a, mm. to, to a child. So I think it's partly stressing uh, these these order-based arguments. Mm. Um, there's, of course, the more liberty-based arguments, which I'm sure you and I agree on, um, which don't persuade people very well. Or rather, the people who believe that are already on our side. We don't need to worry about yeah. them, right? They're going to come out and vote yes, mm. or if it's yes or no, whatever. Yeah. I don't know, the question hasn't been thought of yet. But the, the So I think the things I would recommend are get conservative authority figures to advocate for this, mm-hmm. police officers, um, all that kind of that, that kind of person, uh, you know, conservative politicians, if you can, and I think this is very compatible with. Con- I mean, I'm very much not conservative, but the the, you know, if you're concerned about wasting public money, my yeah. God, I can't imagine a worse waste of public money. Um, so, and stressing these 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 conservative arguments that that help us to. To, to see the horrors. Mm. And I mean, that's kind of your point, right? No one's saying that drugs are cool or fun. We're saying they exist and we have to deal with them. And the best way to deal with them is to regulate them. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Green Tea. Make sure to check out more awesome, brilliant, fun, radical, wonderful conversations uh, in our other episodes of Green Tea. Uh, please make sure that you do like, subscribe, all of the things that YouTube bloggers say at the end of their videos, but just whatever will help us to escalate this podcast up the uh, kind of ranks. Because it so happens that inside the Green Party caucus, we currently have uh, excessive representation of podcasters. And I mean, in a non-violent manner, I would very much like to wrangle down our honourable James Shaw co-leader of the Greens Minister of Climate Change uh, and make sure that he knows he has to keep evolving and progressing. Thanks for tuning in. This has been authorised by Chloe Swarbrick, uh, Parliament Buildings.